Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world, with the MD, Dr. DJ Verrett. Greetings, and thank you for joining us for Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Eric Kolstad. Eric is a board-certified emergency room physician and co-founder and current chief medical officer of Attune Medical, a medical device company focused on patient warming and cooling. Eric and I date back all the way to medical school, and for disclosure, I am an investor in Attune Medical. After the break, we'll be back talking medical device creation with Eric Colstead. Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. We're talking to Chris Hansen today from Alliance Bank. Chris, tell us about your bank. EJ, thanks so much for having us. So Alliance Bank is a 95-year Texas-only bank. My office in McKinney services Collin County and surrounding counties. Our three primary niches I would identify are commercial real estate, residential real estate, and healthcare lending. And how can physicians learn more about the bank? My email address is chanson, which is C-H-A-N-S-E-N at alliancebank.com. And check them out on the web, alliancebank.com. Welcome back to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. With EMD, I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. This afternoon, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Eric Colstead. Eric and I go back to medical school, but since then, Eric has had quite the trials and tribulations of taking a medical device from the, uh, the development stage all the way to a company that has FDA approvals and on the front lines of actually treating COVID. So the CMO and co-founder of Attune Medical, Dr. Eric Kolstad. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks, DJ, for having me. A pleasure to be here. So why don't you, just for our listeners, since uh, they aren't familiar with your background, why don't you kind of give us a, a quick, you know, 30-second spiel on who you are and where you come from? Sure. Um, I uh, actually started out uh, as an engineer um, and uh, actually prior to that, an auto mechanic and um, somehow I ended up uh, leaving engineering to go into medicine. Um, and uh, that's uh, when, when we met at UT Southwestern uh, in Dallas, Texas. And um, after uh, finishing residency, uh, came to the conclusion that there was a, an unmet need in, in clinical practice for whole body temperature management, uh, and specifically uh, in uh, reducing body temperature after cardiac arrest. And you know, back in 2002, uh, you know, a couple of papers came out showing some benefits to doing so, and we were doing it fairly regularly in the emergency department, but the tools that we had to do it were um, complicated and expensive. And um, I just remembered from the days uh, back DJ, when we were medical students, one of the things that we used to do was gastric lavage in the emergency department for GI bleeding. And the, the side effect of that gastric lavage, of course, was the patients would get kind of cold. And um, so, you know, leveraging back to the, uh, the, to the automotive days and the engineering days, I realized that the heat transfer environment of the uh, esophagus was was pretty robust and um, thought, hey, why don't we uh, make something that uh, leverages that uh, environment? And um, 
uh, takes the idea of gastric lavage, makes it a closed loop system, and maybe plugs into existing heat exchangers uh, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but um, you know, make uh, sort of a pre-existing concept uh, easier, quicker, safer, and, and better. And um, uh, that was the idea. And uh, you know, lo and behold, 10 years later, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> When I remember at one point you were telling me about the story of actually creating your first prototypes, and I thought that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's funny. When I first had the idea, I figured, well, it's a good idea. Somebody else must have thought it and must have actually come up with a, a product uh, to do this. And um, so I spent a little bit of time looking around on the internet and trying to find the company that that builds something like this, figuring it, it's already on the market and. Uh, it um, after looking around, I didn't see anything like that, and um, so I had the the fortunate circumstance to have a a, a friend in the neighborhood uh, who was a, a medical device IP attorney, and um, he uh, sort of gave me the the impetus to sort of take this to the next level, and um, you know sort of guided me through how to uh, research you know what it, what else might be out there in terms of intellectual property. Um, after coming up with uh, you know nothing uh, of of the type that that we were envisioning, um, he suggested that we build a prototype. And um, I had a friend uh, from engineering school who had just been laid off from the Detroit um, catastrophe uh, back in two thousand eight, and um, he and many colleagues um, you know were laid off of their respective automotive industry uh, jobs and uh, so uh, he and I uh, spent uh, several days together in uh, in cold Detroit in February um, building a prototype out of uh, hardware parts um, you know going to the aquarium store for for heating elements uh, um, setting up uh, uh, a human model in his daughter's bathtub um, you know, going to Granger and and uh, <laughs> Home Depot and and the like, and uh, we we spent an awful lot of time, almost not sleeping the entire time, uh, you know, building uh, prototypes, testing them out, um, you know, getting the, the pumps just right, and you know, trying to mimic as best we could human physiology in a bathtub. And um, with that, uh, <laughs> quite the challenge. <laughs> it was, it uh, and I've got great pictures from that from that era. Um, you know, a, a decade ago, almost now. And um, we must have uh, been a pretty successful experiment, though, with where you guys have come. It was, and it helped for a couple of reasons. You know, one, it just gave us sort of the, the proof of concept that hey, this isn't just a, a wacky idea I I came up with on the back of the en of an envelope. It actually, you know, has the capability to, to work and the capacity to to drop temperature of a large body of water, which which you know sort of is what we are. And um, but it also then provided input to the intellectual property. And if you have, you know, the more data you have in your patent filings. Um, uh, the better. And, um, and so this was, you know, sort of an important first step uh, to get our very first patents uh, filed and, and eventually issued. Well, why don't you talk a little bit, because I, I definitely want you to take us through the entire development process and kind of put 10 years into about 10 minutes, but can you talk yeah. a little bit about the intellectual property side of things? What, what do you need? What are you looking for? If you had if you had another physician in front of you today that said, listen, I have a great idea. Um, not sure I'm going to develop it. I don't know what to do. What would you tell them about the intellectual property portions? 
Uh, yeah, it's a tricky um, question because you you want to do as much as you possibly can, you know, within the budget that you've got available. And at this at the typical stage when you're trying to do the initial filings of intellectual property, you generally don't have a lot of money to deploy towards that uh, to, towards that effort. Um, but it is something that you get what you pay for, and um, you you certainly want to have. Uh, the best, most experienced intellectual property attorney you can find uh, doing this. Um, and that means you don't want to get your friend who does uh, commercial real estate law, you know, putting together your patent um, because there's, there's, there are subtleties and, 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 you know, new knowledge that's continually uh, evolving in that, in that front. And if there, if it's not somebody that's doing prosecution of IP on a daily basis, uh, you know, you're you're not going to get uh, quite the same result. Um, and the initial filing of a patent now is particularly important because you know we're now first to file. Um, you know, back you know ten years ago, um, we were uh, first to invent, and so we were one of the last countries to 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 switch over to to the to the to the rest of the world's approach of, of first to file. Um, and what that means is that um, you know there's sort of a clock ticking the minute you have an idea. If you if you if you disclose it to to others, you know technically that can invalidate any filing that you make. And um, whereas before you could um, have a notebook that had you know dates and times of of when you were you know developing things, um, you know that that no longer matters. Um, so so. Putting in the effort with the right uh, prosecuting attorney is key, and um, the initial mm -hmm. filing itself it doesn't have to be that expensive. I mean, there, there's the work to put together the, the patent, um, but it's uh, generally a provisional filing. Uh, but getting that out there and getting your line in the sand as to when you came up with the idea and you know what it encompasses um, is 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 important. And, and when you say prosecute, uh, just for, for those that may not know, he's just talking about the attorney that will actually file the patent for you, work through it, dealing with the patent office and get it all the way to issuance from the patent office. That, that The lawyers term that patent prosecution. Exactly. And it's distinct from patent litigation um, where you've got something issued and now you're arguing over whether somebody may have infringed uh, upon it or someone might be arguing that you might have infringed upon their patent. So, so the litigating attorneys are generally different from the prosecuting attorneys. Um, and, uh, um, you know, you, you, the, the, the one that you want to have in your, in your court when you're starting off and court isn't even the right word. Uh, a sports metaphor <laughs> on your you're side of, on your side of the net basically <laughs> yeah your side of the net is um is the prosecuting attorney who who will you know and, and the prosecute being not not a the legal term for for um uh, the, uh of, of of um not a criminal prosecutor. criminal activity <laughs> right this right, is no. the, the mechanics as you it, described them so yeah so i mean and and you know it also how long does it take to get a patent issued. So you, you file the provisional patent within a year, you file your, your final patent. And then how long is it, how long have you, how long has it taken you guys to actually get patents issued? Uh, it varies. And um, there are some new fast track approaches that are available that can speed the process up, but you're usually looking at a, a you know, minimum of a couple of years. Um, and, you know, that can go out for quite some time, especially if you, if you have an examiner that, 
you know, find some prior art that they feel, um, you know, you it precludes some of your claims, um, because then, then you're going back and forth and having, a, you know, a dialogue and, um, and, and that's a, it's a complex dialogue. It's also, that's the part that gets expensive because, you know, now you've got your, you know, your attorney, you know, spending time, you know, writing responses or on the phone uh, with the examiner, um, you know, hashing out some of these, some of the, some of the issues that may come up. And, uh, and that takes time, of course. So, so, but generally it's in this sort of, you know, a couple of years or more process before you get to the point of uh, a filing being issued. Um, and then of course you still have the one year from the, the time that you file as a provisional to convert it to a non-provisional. Um, and uh, so you, when you factor that in as well, you know, you're, you're often looking at three to four years before you have a, a, an issued patent. And, and this may be actually come back and maybe I can have you on the show later and we can go th- a lot more through patents and your experience with it. Cause that, that can be a whole show unto itself. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, but with that in mind that it's going to be a multi-year process, obviously then you're going to start development of your device in parallel to your intellectual property protections, your patents, et cetera. So kind exactly. of walk us through what the device development looked like for you. Yeah, that's when it gets tricky because um, you know the you generally need money to do that. Um, you can you can self fund to a point, uh, but it's it's a rare person that can take it beyond you know just sort of early stage development. And what you what you what you need to get uh, the funding uh, to to take it to the next stage oftentimes is something like. Uh, issued patents, <laughs> and so there's a, a little bit of a of a balancing act that you have to walk on, um, it, you know, taking things through the development stage while you're waiting for for IP to issue, um, and um, the different ways to to approach that. But you know, one of the 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 things to to be aware of is that in the early stages, when you've got something sort of high risk, but but high reward or large impact or big effect size or you know filling a, a clinically unmet need, um, you know, there are sources for funding that are non-dilutive and um, non-dilutive well, no, meaning. Me, yeah, exactly. Oh, if you don't mind, yeah. explain what non-dilutive is. Exactly. So ordinarily, um, you know, when you raise money for a company, you sell parts of the company. You sell it in shares or you sell it in, in you know, convertible notes that, that then will become shares in the company at some later stage. Um, and that money means, you know, you're getting money to do what you need to develop your product, but you're giving up, uh, you know, ownership of, of your, your, your baby. Um, non-dilutive means you get money, but you don't give up anything. And the non-dilutive funding generally refers to grant opportunities, and in particular for, for medical devices or, or pharmaceutical technology um, the, the, the grant opportunities are called SBIR for small business innovation research grants. Um, and these are, these are, you know, monies that are set aside from, uh, agencies like, uh, the NIH, uh, NSF and a handful of others. FDA has some CDC has some, uh, and they, they dedicate that money strictly for small high risk startups um, that are that are you know developing technology that are early enough stage where they're not likely to get funding yet, 
Um, but there's a good chance that, you know, if they prove the concept, if they get to the next couple of milestones, then they'll be in a position to raise money from, you know, angel groups, venture capital, private equity, family offices, uh, and so forth, the, the usual places where people raise larger uh, amounts of money. So when you guys started the process, so you had, you, 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 you had your friend's daughter's bathtub, you had your <laughs> prototype device, what's the next step then? Um, we got, um, after a few tries now, uh, you know, I, I'm talking about non-dilutive funding as if it's, it's sort of, you know, easy. Um, it's, it's not easy to get. It's a, you know, they're very competitive grants. Um, and the, the typical rate of success for one of these grants is about 10%. And so, uh, you know, the way I look at that is, you know, you need to, to file 10 to get one successfully funded. And, um, we filed, I think we filed three or four or five before we, we got successful on, on, on one of them. And um, with that, um, you know, that took us from sort of, you know, really just idea and concept stage with, you know, very rough proof of concept. I think we had one animal study done, again, you know, self-funded because, you know, we had resources and we had, um, we had uh, you know, contacts where we could do things relatively frugally. Um, once we got that initial grant, and that was through NSF, National Science Foundation, um, you know, all of a sudden it became a real uh, a company. And, and, you know, part of the grant requires you actually do have a, a form, you know, an office. Um, this started out in my, in, in my house and, you know, the company address was my home address. And um, then, you know, all of a sudden we went from that to, okay, now we need a, you know, a dedicated facility, um, lab space, if you would, and um, uh, we need to hire people. And uh, so we, we got our grant in 2012. Um, hired our first employee um, uh, who was an intern uh, during his graduate training in biotechnology. And so, um, and that employee is still with us. <laughs> it's, uh, wow. he's, he's actually our um, senior director of operations right now. So, um, so that, um, that, you know, was uh, I'm sort of compressing a lot into, into one sort of, you know, big, big moment that, that, that kind of, you know, made this thing from, from, you know, just sort of a hobby in the garage type of uh, concept to, okay, now we're a real company. Uh, we have to, you know, take this from where we are now to a commercial product. Um, and, you know, the, the real key there is that, you have to you have to now sort of develop your manufacturing, determine where you're going to do manufacturing, who's going to do the manufacturing for you, and set up a quality control system, an entire you know, quality management system, um, so that you can um, you know get through the regulatory uh, uh, requirements uh, for for a medical device. Um, you know, and you know those of course vary by the degree of risk of the device, um, but. Um, you know, the idea is that uh, your device will fall into, into some category of risk and that category dictates the level of work that you'll have to do to, to get your device onto the market. And, and prior to getting that, of course, you, you can't sell your device at all. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the, the regulatory process is a, that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) 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 Well, well, in in hearing you talk about it, so you started this around 2008, correct? Right. I think we, we incorporated in 2000, idea in 2008, uh, incorporated as an LLC in 2009. And then you were talking about 
hiring employees in 2012. So that's yep. four years later. Yep. And that's when kind of your studies first started. How long, how long after that did you start the FDA approval process? Um, with, with the hiring of our uh, intern, that really started the, the, the route uh, down the regulatory pathway. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we took a big chance on, uh, you know, having somebody, you know, an intern <laughs> who had not done it before, um, you know, sort of help lead that, that effort. Uh, we, we happened to get, uh, you know, very lucky. I mean, we had our choice of, uh, of who to hire out of the group uh, that was available. And uh, you know, we went with the, the, the one with, with certainly the, the most uh, talent on paper. And that, that talent turned out to be, uh, you know, translate directly into, into reality. And um, the, uh, the, the, the pathway um, of going through into uh, a submission, and in, in our case, we used uh, the, the the de novo process, uh, which is sort of a uh, a risk level in between five ten k and and PMA. Uh, in other words, it's 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 not so low risk that it can be just a class one device. It's probably class two, but there's no predicate. You have no other device out there similar to your device that you can you can claim as a predicate and and just you know do the easier five ten k route. But it's not so high risk like an implantable device or level, you know, class three device that r would require a full PMA. Um, and so de novo is a relatively newer pathway. And in fact, when we started pursuing the de novo pathway, um, that was a little bit renegade in the sense that, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of FDA consultants, you know, had no experience in, in de novo. And, um, and so to our regulatory interns <laughs> uh, credit um, you know he, he took it on um, uh, you know with with with, with gusto and um, uh, you know was able to to assemble everything that we needed and and basically with you know every device that, that requires a, a different level of, of or quantity of, of data in in the submission um, we um, in talking to FDA, determined you know what we needed to do, um, and and most of it was was related to looking at histopathology on on animal studies, um, because that was what they deemed as sort of the highest uh, you know risk potential, and um, we I, what what I'm sorry what the highest risk potential? Oh, I mean, there, it's always a the the the, the decision to grant regulatory clearance on a device is always a question of risk versus benefit. You know, if the, if the benefit is huge and the risk is, is minimal or negligible, then it's an easy clearance. If the benefit is, you know, dubious and the risk is high, that won't get cleared. And, um, you know, most devices, you know, sort of fall in the middle somewhere. And so, so the FDA will say, well, here's what, where we think the, the most risk in your device might be. And, it, you know, the, they, they were focusing on, you know, does this damage the esophagus at all? Ah. Um, because everything else is fairly straightforward, and it, you know, we we sort of mimic the idea of a of a gastric tube, which you know are used, you know, thousands of times a day, um, you know, just in any given city. Um, and uh, so, um, with that, we we set about getting the you know assembling all the information and the data, um, and um, we I think got our submission um, and and. At the time we were doing this, we also wanted to get into Europe. 
Um, and Europe has, a, has, at the time, had a very different approach to, to regulatory clearance. They gave you much more upfront uh, information um, to sort of allow you to plan uh, how, to, uh, how to proceed. FDA um, you know, wasn't very good at giving information upfront. They preferred to just see the submission and then you know, critique it after the fact. Um, and so most people at the time would uh, spend more time getting through, uh, spend more effort getting through the European regulatory process first, because that gave them a lot more insight as to, you know, where, what, what things might come up as you go through the U.S. regulatory. So I think we got our regulatory clearance in Europe in 2014 or 2015, I think 2014. So, so two years after we started uh, we got our first regulatory clearance, and then we got the FDA several months after that in 2015. Wow. And, and as a reminder, I don't think we talked about it the whole time. You're still an emergency physician. Right. Yeah, I was still working full time. I mean, I'm still working as an, as an emergency physician now, um, but um, I'm only part time, uh, you know, uh, clinically and in part time doing some teaching and uh, um, doing a little bit of research as well at the, at the university, um, you know, unrelated to, to my device. Um, and, um, I, 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 I stayed full time for, for a long time and I've never quit, <laughs> you know, at least part time clinically. And in part because early mentors of mine who were physician entrepreneurs and mentors, um, all of them to a person said, you know, Eric, don't quit the day job. Um, you, you know, if you do, um, the, the, what, what happens, what may happen is that if your company is unsuccessful, and keep in mind, most startups fail, you know, 80 or 90% of them fail. Um, and, uh, you know, when that happens, uh, you, you need to know what you're going to do next. And if you have been out of practice for more than, you know, one or two years, uh, you almost can't get credentialed again in most hospitals. And I, I've, uh, I, I know one uh, physician entrepreneur um, in in uh, in critical care who who had this happen, and um, you know he went full time with his company, uh, left clinical practice uh, a couple years later, couldn't raise enough money to keep the company afloat, um, needed to go back to work, and uh, hospitals um, would not take him back because they couldn't credential him. You know when you're out of, out right. of practice for two years most credentialing committees, um, you know, don't appreciate that. And so he, he was faced with some awful decisions at that point. Yeah, no, I, I actually sit on a couple of credential committees and I can definitely speak to that. We run into that <laughs> every now and again, we're physicians for whatever reason, we're, we're out for a number of years and it, and it's, yeah. a, it's a difficult call on both sides of the equation. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you're looking at, so add everything together about seven years to device approval for you guys. At that point, how much money had it taken to, to get to device approval? Um, about. I think uh, we were probably at about it's our Series B, if I remember, and that I think was on the order of about six or seven million dollars. Okay. And then so, our Series C added in. You know, our total raise to date is um, is uh, twenty two million dollars. Um, so we've, we've done things fairly frugally. Um, you know, if you compare, for example, other class two medical devices in the resuscitative space, um, you know, the, the most likely comparables, the, 
the typical time to get to market is sort of, you know, seven plus years and about anywhere from 30 to $90 million, um, you know, just sort of surveying, you know, the, the most similar comparables uh, in terms of the class two, uh, you know, level of risk device. And, um, and so we, we were able to do a, an awful lot for, for very little in part because we didn't pay ourselves. Like I didn't pay myself <laughs> most of the, most of the uh, early years, uh, anything. And, um, and, you know, we, we just were very frugal and, and the folks that came on board were just, you know, very committed to doing something, you know, they, they would get way more responsibility than they would get at any other company. I mean, if they worked for, you know, any of the large, uh, you know, corporate uh, med device companies, you know, they would not get anywhere near the level of responsibility or uh, authority that uh, they got with a startup. And, and a lot of people just really wanted to work for a startup. And so, um, and like typically those are running the company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that's where, you know, you get people, um, who, you know, sort of have that similar sort of focus that you know, they want to, they're just, they're going to work excessively. They're going to work long, hard hours. And it's, it's just, a, it's a thrill, uh, to, to be able to do that. So, um, so, so with that, um, yeah, we, I, ballpark numbers, you know, sort of in, in the single digit millions to get to the first clearance. Um, and that's when things get a little more expensive because, you know, either you get acquired at that point, um, and that is certainly an inflection point where your, your, your startup may, may well get bought. Um, and, you know, we had discussions with acquirers at that point in time, um, didn't see anything that was attractive or didn't receive any offers that were attractive enough to warrant at that point, um, you know, giving up control uh, of the company. And um, so at that point, you're faced with, you know, raising enough money to then actually, you know, start um, going out into the, into the market. And um, that, of course, takes more people. And, um, and so that's where, that's where the larger raises end up happening. Now, you know, we had the virtue of having a device, you know, cleared and, you know, already to go to market, um, uh, you know, when we when we started to bring people on board in on the sales front, and um, and you know that was that was um, that was helpful. Um, you know, if you're if you're sort of anticipating uh, having the device, uh, you know, ready to go to market, and you've got a bunch of people on. Uh, that are waiting for that, and then for some reason you you get delayed, which happens all the time in, in the regulatory world. Um, your product gets rejected or what have you. You know that can tank a company. So, um, so we've been you know fortunate uh, on that front. So unfortunately, we are approaching the end of our our time, but I I'd like you to kind of condense the next five years in the development cycle and something we were kind of talking about before the podcast in how you guys have changed direction in the focus you you have the same device but the applications of it have changed over the last couple of years as opportunities presented themselves so maybe you can kind of summarize that for us i think it would be helpful for for folks listening yeah absolutely and that's that's key is being you know just able to uh to to pivot as as needed as as the market reacts to to what you have and as as new opportunities arise um and that's, you know, the advantage you have as a small startup is, you know, you can make decisions pretty quickly. Um, and in our case, we went out, to, you know, our initial focus was whole body hypothermia. Uh, once we started getting into hospitals, we started seeing people also using it for 
um, for, for other reasons of whole body temperature, other needs for uh, in whole body temperature modulation, including warming people. So, you know, warming uh, patients, you know, trauma patients, burn patients that, that have a problem with inadvertent perioperative hypothermia. And um, so that uh, sort of, you know, added a little bit more to scope to, to what uh, we, we focused on. Um, but what then happened was uh, some electrophysiologists started using our device, not for whole body temperature modulation, but specifically for uh, cooling the esophagus during left atrial ablations for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And uh, the, the, the challenge when uh, left atrial uh, ablation is occurring is that the esophagus uh, is right posterior to the left atrium, uh, directly posterior to the left atrium. And when the ablation catheter is uh, forming the intended lesions in the left atrial tissue, uh, occasionally that, uh, that thermal energy, that heat from the ablation catheter transmits all the way through the, the wall of the atrium uh, into the esophagus and causes damage. And that damage can progress to something called an atrioesophageal fistula. Uh, once you have an atrioesophageal fistula, the mortality is on the order of 80%. Wow. And uh, so it's a dreaded complication that, um, that uh, everyone would like to avoid. Um, and the, the technology that's used uh, before we came on uh, and it became available um, uh, focused on measuring temperature in the esophagus with a typical temperature sensor uh, and reacting to it so that when temperature was elevated, people would then, the ablationist, uh, the operator would, would stop the ablation. Uh, the challenge with that, of course, is that by the time you're sensing temperature rise, the damage has generally already occurred. Um, and so uh, a handful of physicians, electrophysiologists, um, roughly at the same time, um, had read uh, one of our papers in a resuscitation journal on whole body cooling and thought this would be interesting because if I could use this during my ablation, I could maybe prevent the esophagus from getting uh, overheated at all. And they started using it. And um, the sites that had started doing it with an, an endoscopy afterwards to see how well it worked um, and compared it to their prior experience with other devices were finding phenomenal um, effect sizes. Um, and uh, so once we saw that, we, uh, we, we jumped on that because, um, you know, that uh, opened up a whole new area of medicine that um, was very unfamiliar to us. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the data that has since been generated after we identified this as a potential uh, area of interest um, have, have been very, very impressive. Um, and unlike anything else out there that's currently used uh, for esophageal protection. So, so with that now, um, you know, we're, we're, we're working on getting formal um, FDA labeling to, to, to cover the, the additional aspect of, of what we're doing, because this is, you know, more than just whole body temperature modulation. This is, um, you know, specific uh, to, to an area of the body. I mean, granted, it's, it's still body temperature man manipulation either way, but, um, you know, we want to, we'd like to also be able to, to, to sort of demonstrate what the effect size is, you know, based on the data generated to date and, and ongoing studies that are, that are uh, reporting data uh, yeah, currently. And um, so, um, so the, the, the pivot there, um, you know, now, you know, this is a, a, a significant area of focus for us. So, you know, we're not abandoning, uh, you know, anything else. Uh, this is just sort of one more application for the device. And um, the, um, I think the key is that as you, as you, you know, think about the, the product idea that you have, 
um, you know, be prepared for uh, sudden, uh, you know, things coming out of out of the blue, um, you know, that might be very worthwhile pursuing and 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 might be, uh, um, you know, might require a significant change in focus. Um, it can be hard to do, um, you know, because, because, you know, there's obviously a, a trade-off between where you put your attention, you know, during the 24 hours a day that you have available to work on this. And to speak to how good that indication is, I saw there was actually an article in Medscape today about your, uh, about your technology. So kudos on that one. That was beautiful. We, we, we didn't know it was coming out. Um, you know, the investigator that uh, presented his data just uh, a matter of several weeks ago, um, uh, didn't mention that he was being interviewed by uh, the Medscape uh, team. And um, so this came out of the blue and uh, just one of those lovely surprises that you like to see. <laughs> and, and quickly too, the, the other opportunity you were telling me about is actually in, uh, in COVID with warming patients to decrease the severity of infection. I think you guys if I remember right, you're starting some clinical trials in that area as well. Exactly. You know, when the COVID catastrophe started unfolding and we started seeing all the sequelae uh, from infected patients, you know, coming into our own emergency department, um, you know, the first question we had was, you know, do we have any anything to offer? Is there anything we can do? And, and in that search, uh, that led me to a couple of physicians, you know, sort of pioneering the concept of of temperature in sepsis, um, and they're out of uh, Washington University and Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. And um, so, uh, professors uh, Richard Hotchkiss and uh, Ann Drury. Um, Ann is actually the uh, division chief of critical care uh, for Barnes Jewish, and um, they had been looking at this for for quite some time, for for years. And in fact, um, uh, Dr. Drury even. Uh, completed the very first randomized controlled trial in warming patients with, with sepsis um, and found uh, on preliminary data uh, evidence of benefit in uh, immune function, uh, immune, immune function stimulation um, and uh, enhancement of, of actual clinical outcome. And um, so uh, in, in, in discovering all of their work, I reached out to them, got connected through a mutual acquaintance, and um, we are now um, actively pursuing the idea of, of warming applied uh, not just to sepsis in general, but specifically to, to COVID. And uh, there's some growing data to suggest that you know, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus um, might have a little bit of an in inhibition in, in entry, you know, cell entry through the ACE2 receptor uh, with only a couple of degrees elevation in temperature. And we already know that the immune system seems to, to operate um, at a little bit more of an efficient uh, uh, performance level with, again, a couple of degrees in temperature, which sort of supports the idea that fever might be beneficial in infections, which a lot of people have been saying for a hundred years or more. <laughs> and, the data is finally catching up with them. And it's, it's incredible to think that in, in 2020, you know, the first clinical study was completed at the beginning of 2020 before, yeah. you know, COVID came through. And um, I don't know, I'm not sure why it took so long. Um, you know, th there's an interesting backstory to, to the warming concept because before antibiotics, that is what they used to do. And they called it pyrotherapy. Um, and, um, it was done through various means, um, and a Nobel Prize was awarded in 1927 for, oh, for the concept of pyrotherapy, and then uh, penicillin came on the market, and that pretty much <laughs> eliminated anyone's interesting <laughs> interest in warming. Interesting. So, uh, so we're coming full circle, um, but 
you know, we'll, we'll have data uh, on the, the concept of core warming and, you know, the, the potential benefits that we think we might see uh, here in the coming, you know, weeks or months. Wow. That is really exciting stuff. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ask, Ask Me MD. When we come back, Dr. Colstead will give his top three suggestions for any physician looking to start a medical device. We'll be right back. Learn more at She Can STEM, a message brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome back to Ask Me MD. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Joining us today, Dr. Eric Kolstad of Attune Medical, talking to us about how a physician can go from a medical device idea to a company that's FDA approved and selling devices in the market. So to wrap things up, Eric, why don't you give our audience the top three thoughts that you have for anyone considering to start a medical device company? Yeah, thanks, DJ. So um, distilling it down to three, it's tough. Obviously, there's a lot to, to consider. But in my mind, uh, the, first, the, the first thing to keep in mind is that uh, it will not be easy. Uh, it will take much, much longer than just the coming up with the idea. And um, I think when I first started this, I thought, you know, getting, having the idea was the hard part. I thought everything else sort of flowed after that. Um, and it's quite the opposite. Having the idea is sort of 2% of the effort. Uh, it gets much harder. Um, and so you just have to be committed to it, expect it to take a long time um, and, you know, be in it for the long haul um, and appreciate failure. Um, and especially for physicians, um, the, the, you know, physicians generally have done well in, in any educational endeavor or pretty much any endeavor in, in many cases, um, you know, and, and they're used to getting 90% plus on tests. And so, so when, you, when, you, um, when you have things that go wrong and that fail, um, it can be jarring. And so I, you just have to sort of accept that um, things will, will take longer, things will go wrong, and you have to sort of, you know, pick yourself up and, and accept the fact that they will go wrong. So, um, so that's all that I put that as number one. That's <laughs> so, no, okay. Uh, we'll take um, it. We'll take it. Number, number two is, uh, learn how to sell it, Cause that's the other thing that I think a lot of physicians, myself very much included, um, didn't have any appreciation, don't have an appreciation for the complexity of, and, um, you know, selling is, is, a is a, is a, is a, is an area of knowledge that is it's hard to learn from a book and um, you know, good salespeople uh, you know, that's why they make more than the CEO. Um, you know, they, they, um, they have talents that are, that are hard to replicate. And um, as, as a startup entrepreneur, you kind of have to know how to, you have to know <laughs> at the very basics uh, of how to sell and um, the complexities behind it, the, the 24 seven sort of focus and the incessant attention to detail um, that, you know, good, uh, you know, sales people have. Um, and, uh, you know, so spending some time on that is, is, is worth doing. Um, and then the third one. Well, and, um, and, and if I could interject, because yeah. the sales that you're talking about there, you're having to sell your company to potential investors. And yep. then at some level, you're having to sell your product to uh, customers. 
So it's, it's exactly kind of a multifaceted sales approach, really. Exactly. And that, that's sort of my, my point number three was learn how to fundraise, which, you know, sort of dovetails with the learning how to sell um, the, and, and also dovetails a little bit with the appreciate failure because <laughs> learning to fundraise, <laughs> yes, you know, yes. I mean, as an example, I've, I've, I've come across folks that, you know, made one investor pitch or two investor pitches, didn't raise money and gave up. And, you know, when I recount our story, um, you know, we, we gave probably a hundred pitches before we got our first uh, investor. Um, and at one point I counted up the total number of uh, slide decks that I had for the various you know, pitches to angel groups, angel investors, individuals, high net worth individuals, family offices, VCs, on and on. And um, it was over 700. And um, so, uh, so that's sort of where, you know, you, you have to um, sort of, you know, mentally prepare yourself uh, for to um to to you know to, to go down this route it's it's you know it gets easier as you go through you know once you demonstrate successful attainment of the milestones you predicted you would get with the last fundraise um then the next fundraise gets easier um but uh the first one is a doozy because you know no it, you you have a hard time you know people are not generally willing to put in a lot of money to the first time entrepreneur that hasn't done it, you know, before. Yeah. Well, and I can speak to that as, as you know, I've invested in your company and I invest in other startups and yep. that's absolutely true. Investing in a, in a good idea from an unproven source is, is very difficult. And yeah. one of the things that I see in companies is the inability to continue fundraising so they'll, they'll get their first tranche of money. They'll do what's called a series A round or a friends and family round. They'll get that money. They'll complete some milestones, but then they can't find that next batch of money for whatever reason. The economy may have changed their idea, lost favor, whatever it is, but they can't, yeah. you know, it's a, it, even though it seems to be progressing. Okay. They just can't find any more money to take things to the next level. So that's, that's definitely something I think, I can see on both sides of the coin from your, your side as the entrepreneur and my side as the investor. Um, That's a, I agree with you. I think that's a very, very difficult thing and something that a physician who's never been involved in the process has a, would have a difficult time understanding. I think you might agree with that one. Absolutely. Yeah. And it it all sort of circles back to the idea of you you need mentors, you need, you know, it's a team effort and, uh, you know, identifying these mentors early. I mean, I touched earlier on the, the, the fact that I had physician entrepreneur mentors. I, I tended to seek out folks that were, um, you know, already, uh, you know, clinicians that had sort of gone into this realm because I figured that'd be most analogous to sort of the path I was, I was hoping to take. And, um, and, and so uh, it, you know, anyone that's been through this um, is, is almost uniformly happy to chat with people and sort of give them the, you know, their, their take on things and advice and guidance. And, you know, it's, it's all just paying it, paying it back, paying it forward, what have you. Um, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really is what, uh, what drives the, the success of the economy. You know, it's, it's the startups that, that, that drive uh, successful economies. Um, and um, so, so there, there's, there are a lot of good reasons to, to put um, effort into it and, 
there are plenty of mentors out there, and um, you know that's probably another topic. No, you know, just 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 sitting here talking to you, I've I've kind of jotted down a few other topics, and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna come back and and take up some more of your time at some point because. I think there's a lot of a lot of information in there, kind of specific things we can drill down on that I kind of have some broader applications even beyond starting a medical device company. Um, yeah. So I think it, it it's interesting. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I I know, as I said, I've I've invested in Attune because it it really has a good product. You guys have done an excellent job taking thanks. the company where it is, and and I as an investor. I definitely like the fact that you're able to pivot and you aren't just set on one thing until the ship goes down to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> you've, you've actually done a really good job on that front. So, yeah. no, um, Thanks, DJ. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate your support and I'm happy to, uh, to be honored to be a guest and I'm happy to, to do so in the future on, on any topics uh, of interest that I can offer any, uh, any insight. Sounds great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Ask Me MD. We've been talking with Dr. Eric Kolstad of Attune Medical, the co-founder and chief medical officer, as well as an emergency room physician on what it takes to start a medical device company. Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Make it an awesome week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask Me MD, Medical School for the Real World with Dr. DJ Verrett. If you have a question or an idea for a show, send us an email at questions at askmemdpodcast.com. 